In a world of uncertainty, one thing's for sure, cancer doesn't stop during a global crisis. On Saturday, June 13th, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society will host a trailblazing event, Big Virtual Climb, sponsored by AbbVie, to support their investment in groundbreaking research to advance blood cancer cures and its first-in-class patient education and services, including financial support and clinical trial navigation. Step up to take cancer down by climbing 61 floors or 1,762 steps. Inside or outside, on stairs, on the road, or your treadmill, climb your way. Join us for an opening ceremony and then take on your climb with our heart-pumping playlist. Join us on June 13th from coast to coast as we come together to climb, conquer, cure. Register at lls.org slash bigclimb. Welcome back, everyone, to No Sleep Till Belmont, your Islanders podcast from The Athletic. Pleased to welcome uh, a very special guest, someone who uh, I've known for a long time, and I think Islander fans can remember from way back when. Uh, he currently is an analyst on MSG Network for Ranger Games and also runs an analytics company called Clearsight Hockey, and that's mostly what we're here to talk about. Let's welcome Steve Valaket to the show. How you doing, Steve? Arthur, I'm doing well, buddy. I, You know, days are going by at a different pace, and everything in the world is different, and there's a lot of challenges right now, and you can imagine, uh, as you know, you've got young children. I've got, I've got middle-aged children, so we're doing a lot more teaching from school than you're probably doing, but it's been a battle, buddy. I'm just trying to hang <laughs> in there and keep my head above water. It is, it is a battle day by day right now, and uh, yeah, it's... Uh... We could do a whole show just about uh, for you uh, becoming a homeschool teacher and for me uh, changing more diapers than I knew was humanly possible. So, um, But instead, we're going to talk about uh, hockey and uh, all of your uh, insights that uh, your company has come up with and um, hearkening back to a, a chat we had uh, about 18 months ago that uh, I think opened a lot of eyes for people who read our site about uh, how to watch the game and how to look for scoring chances and um, – yeah, I think uh, I'm, I'm betting that you've learned even more since we had that conversation. But first, I want to take you back to the 1999-2000 NHL season when you were just a young pup, um, made your NHL debut for the Islanders with Butch Goring as your coach, uh, and you were 2-0 and and had and probably two of their better games that year. Right? Uh, <laughs> what was what were your memories of of being an Islander and being in that organization for uh, for a few years during a a time that was a real transitional period for them. Just thrilled, Arthur. I, off the bat, I, I remember getting called up the very first time, and I made a number of mistakes. My first call up, which was a year before I actually played my first game, uh, we had different rules in the American Hockey League than the NHL. After each intermission, you could skate out on the ice as a backup goaltender, take a couple of hard laps in the AHL, and then get to the bench. Now, you can't do that when you're playing in the NHL because you get a penalty. And I remember being up for a game against the Anaheim Mighty Ducks at the time. And Stru, uh, Stu, the Grim Reaper, was yelling from the bench as Wade Flaherty went out. I followed behind him and I was crossing over like a madman. I could feel my hair flowing. I thought I was just rolling and I'm, I'm going around my second lap and I look behind me and nobody's coming behind me. And Stu Grimson's just, that's a penalty ref, Falaket. I'm going to kill you. You know, and I have no idea what's going on. And that was a, that was a two minute delay of game penalty. And um, I get to the bench as quickly as I can and just watch Solane and Korea play. Um, just getting an idea, Arthur, I think 
to just understand that you can play with these guys. That's a big hurdle for a lot of us in, in Canada because we grew up such fans of the game. And fast forward to a year later, I'm playing my first game against them. It was the Phoenix Coyotes. I get into that game, and what was unique about that game was that um, there was no place for me on the bench to back up Kevin Weeks. And I'm sitting in a back room with the video guys eating popcorn as if I'm just attending the game or I'm working in the back room for the guys that are on the ice and I'm not associated with the team. And coming out of the second period, um, I get a call from somebody that relays the message from Butch Goring, Val, you're going in. And can you imagine the fan experience I have going from where the video guys are preparing things and you're the eye in the sky to getting onto the ice and the first shot that I faced was from Benoit Hogue. And the reason why I remember that, uh, former Islander as well, the reason why I remember that was because I had him in my rotisserie pool. <laughs> and he's about to shoot it. And I'm thinking to myself, I could get a point for this, you know? <laughs> but I think it's it's funny that, you know, you know, I had that approach. But at the same time, I had to get, that was one of the biggest hurdles I had to get over mentally was just being able to believe that I could play with those guys uh, on a regular basis. Yeah, that's uh that's wild to kind of go into that into that setting and um you went on to to play a couple of years in the system there when the when the team really started to turn a corner and um you know it was it was short-lived unfortunately into the into the lockout and then continued on with the Rangers and um you've seen a lot of uh, a lot of hockey from the bench I remember talking to you uh, when we had our sit down about uh, all the games that you backed up and how you learned uh kind of the mental side of being a backup and it's interesting, I think, for the average fan who sits and watch a, watches a game to, uh, you know, it's hard for someone who doesn't play to put themselves in that mindset. But I think the way that they watch the game now um, is sort of along the lines of how you were learning to watch the game then. The fans are a lot more educated. They have a lot more uh, numbers and and smarts at their disposal. But uh, but you, you had a real process uh, in learning how to be in the moment when you were on the bench, too. Uh, everything changed for me, Arthur, in the 0405 season. Uh, we had that lockout. Um, I was very fortunate to have Benoit Lair stay with me and Jason LaBarbera. We were partners in Hartford at that time. But we had a goalie coach there for the first time for a full season at the AHL level. And now, as you know, all 31 teams employ two and sometimes three and four goalie coaches. So there's plenty of coverage. But back in those days, there was only a guy that came in periodically for the NHL goalies. And right. for us in 0405, um, it was it was basically a perfect storm in a few ways for me personally. I hired a sports psychologist, uh, Steve Montador, the late, great Steve Montador. Uh, I remember in the summertime, he and I are very close friends, and he says, Valley, if you want to play in the NHL, you've got to work with this sports psychologist that I hired. She's changed my life, and uh, her name was Giselle Bourgeois. Now, she was in Lennox, Lennox, Mass., and it was about an hour and 15 minutes away from where I was in Hartford. So I was able to get there twice a week. So I wasn't just working on the ice with the best goalie coach in the world, but I was able to work with a sports psychologist. And the way that that changed everything that I looked at in my perspective was understanding where I had shortcomings. I was a career 909 save percentage in the AHL and I was 27 years old and I was pegged to back up Jason LaBarbera at the time. And I had to realize that I had different issues with different, what I would call in the data community, uh, score effects. Um, goalies react very differently depending on the score of the game. 
And these are things that we only know anecdotally, but we don't know in fact until we categorize scoring chances over and over again and then come up with historical averages. And then you're able to look at, wow, this goalie really doesn't stop a puck when his team's up by a goal. Any scoring chance seems to go in on this guy. And there are goalies in the NHL that are plagued with that mental barrier. They're, they're not able to give themselves permission to believe in themselves during those game conditions. They, they play really well and make a lot of saves when their team is down by two, but not when it matters. Mm-hmm. And the psychology of a team, Arthur, it hinges on the mental strength of your goaltender. And there are goalies, and this is what I'm really fascinated with right now, and you alluded to that at the beginning of the interview, things that I'm working on right now. Well, I'm fascinated with the fact that I can remember myself uh, getting rattled playing against the Albany River Rats in the American Hockey League before I worked with my sports psychologist, feeling the pressure in a game that I knew I had to win. They're in last place, we're in first place, and I get scored on twice in the first period against a team that I think, you know, full disclosure, I think I'm too good to be playing against. I think I'm too good for them. Now, that's not a good thing because anytime you let your guard down because you think you're better than somebody, you end up taking that bite in the butt. And that's that's everything in life, isn't it? Mm. So I had to come up with strategies with the help of my sports psychologist to play the puck. Next puck, not the opponent. I compete against the puck. The puck tells me where to go, when to go, how fast to go. I have to keep squareness on it at all times. That keeps me in the present moment. I'm competing against the puck. That concept helped me stay in the now. And I had triggers and and I had mottos and I had different things that basically I came up with through a trial and error. But during that year, uh, leading the league in save percentage with my partner, it went a long way to give me the belief that I could play in the NHL at some point in a supporting role. I was already getting too old because it took me so long to really gather the courage to get a sports psychologist. But I've, I've explained this one to you before in the past too. I mean, I found out how to be on the bench and support my partner. That was another thing that I learned from my sports psychologist. And then a lot of us goalies, Arthur, we have a hard time being on the bench because we all want to play. Uh, I could go back to my junior career. Come on, I, I played sixty-one out of sixty-six games. I wasn't, I wasn't, you know, raising myself up to be through all of my training to just be a backup. I wanted to start just like everybody else. So when the other goalies in the net, we naturally want them to perform poorly so we get a chance to go in and play. And that didn't work out well for me either because, as it was explained to me from Giselle. She said, Steve, your unconscious mind can't differentiate between you wanting them to allow a goal or you yourself having that negative experience. I learned how to see the goaltender that I was partners with make saves, and then I would make the save. I'd be moving on the bench when they receive the puck at the hip or the chest or make a glove save. If a goal went in, I would replay that goal and then see where the mistake was made, where was... Where was the correction to be made? I'd have that conversation post-game with my goalie partner. It went a long way because I was able to go stretches for a number of years where I wouldn't play for two and three weeks and then be able to give my team a performance. But that was based on the mental prep I had prior to puck drop. Yeah, it's uh, and and uh, in talking to you before also, and you can tell our audience now, how, how that led you to take such an interest in in data and how goals are scored and and kind of what's become the heart of a lot of uh, a lot of strategy and a lot of analysis within the game 
The way I start looking at things, um, well, I'll back up. Before I even started categorizing everything, I was really in tune to the fact that not all shots are created equal, right? And in the summer of 2014, hockey had an analytics revolution. And that was right in line with the time I was retiring from playing. After 15 years pro and prior to that five years in junior, I had played on 20 different hockey teams. So I've seen quite a bit. And I thought to myself, if each coaching staff that I ever played for looked at scoring chances differently because they were just looking at them from their own opinion, their own experience, then how the heck can we look at what scoring chances would be like if you took any of their philosophies and did it for every team in the league for every game played during a season? Then, and only then, could you get historical averages per shot type. To say that a breakaway goes in 31% of the time, you would not be able to say that unless you've categorized all 2,300 breakaways during the season, <laughs> right? So that was my that was my coming to Jesus moment with the sport. I, I just couldn't believe that we've gotten this far in hockey and there is no measure for what a scoring chance is across the league. So you really want to qualify scoring chances. And the only way I thought that that could get done was that if I was able to come up with an expected goals model. Now, an expected goals model is built using historical averages for every chance in the NHL during a season. Uh, you need a database to hold that. We've got 350,000 NHL chances in our database categorized by shot type. And then you have to manually track all of these shots to then get true context for every event. And then you can deliver these things in the morning, the game, uh, the morning after the game is played to teams. So you can actually have the structure for a business. Uh, that's what I thought was going to be possible. Uh, I didn't realize this project, this thought would be such a gut-wrenching experience <laughs> because it's, it's, it's that hard to do. And I'm not even worried about anybody copying it because it's that hard to do. But I think uh, step number one, Arthur, is how are our uh, goals being scored in the NHL? So let's just start there. It's a simple question. How are they being scored? Well, goals this season and last, there is one shot sequence that goes in more often than any other shot sequence, and it's what we would call a low slot line pass. Now, if there's a line that divides the ice in two and it goes from the middle of the net and it stops at the top of the circle, imagine just splitting the ice into two equal parts, any pass that begins above the hash mark and then is received below the hash mark from one side of the ice to the other within a subsequent shot. That shot accounted for more goals last year in the NHL than any other shot type. Uh, 736 goals on 2,023 shots. So it's a telling sign to me that, okay, what did this show me when I was a goalie? It's the hardest thing to stop, Arthur, because I'm on one side of the ice. I'm fixed in my stance. The shooter's approaching me. He's a threat. And now the pass that goes across the ice, physically, it's the first time I have to open my legs. Um, I've got to be able to move my head and rotate and get full rotation. I've got to go a full 180 just to get around the pass and then get down to my far post. It's a very difficult technical save, physical, cognitive it's very difficult. And of course, I felt that. But at the same time, I would have said at the end of my playing career that breakaways went in the most often. You know, I would have mm -hmm. thought those were probably the scoring opportunities that went in the most. But 
it was neat going through the project because then I was able to figure that out. The next two top scoring sequences in the NHL are actually two different types of broken plays. What we would categorize as a mid percentage broken play. And then what we categorize as a high percentage broken play. And you, you can imagine how difficult these things are to put into context when you're training people to then watch the game the way that you do and then categorize them and go through all the filters that you need to do. The simple way of saying it is that a mid-percentage broken play would be like a shot that comes delivered to the net from the point in the air. The player is waving at it. He's trying to deflect it down, but it inadvertently hits somebody's elbow or shin pad and then ends up in the net. That's a mid-percentage broken play because the intent of the play was a mid-percentage shot, an in-the-air deflection, no screen. A high-percentage broken play, again, is the slot line pass. It's a pass that's intended to go across to the uh, receiving player. It doesn't reach him because you're forcing the opposition to defend, and it goes uh, inadvertently off their skate or off their stick. So those went in 434 times last year. And it's neat because when you look at how the puck actually ends up in the net at the end of the season, the slot line is directly impacted in both of those two sequences, two of the top three. If you can move the puck from one side of the ice to the other and force the other team to defend, you're going to obviously get more broken play goals. Um, Step two for me, Arthur, is it's an easy one too. If you're new to the data, maybe just look at who won last year. You know, you can always look at who was the most recent Stanley Cup winner. In in this case, it's the St. Louis Blues. And I would say to myself, uh, again, looking through a database, a robust database with a lot of things to look at, um, how do they create grade A chances? That's one way I would look at it. Or how often do they create grade A chances? Are grade A chances even important? Can you get through just playing meat and potatoes hockey by getting pucks to the net from the point with one screen, working on deflections and trying to get rebounds? Well, what I thought was interesting with St. Louis is this season, uh, they are one of the top six teams in high percentage chances for and against in OZP. Only Carolina and Vegas are also in the top six. So those are three pretty good teams. And you could say Carolina, I'm not so sure, but Carolina is top five in just about everything except for goaltending. They're a good team. If anything unravels Carolina, it's it's just goaltending. Mm-hmm. Um, St. Louis is number two, tied with Boston for slot line plays created in OZP, offensive zone play. St. Louis is number seven in slot line plays that have led to goals tied with Washington. They're good at finishing on their scoring chances. They've got a better than average shooting percentage, but it's not outstanding. Um, Then I would look to expected goals. Uh, It's a rate stat, so it's per 60 minutes of ice time. That that equalizes everybody's playing field. And at five-on-five with the game tied, St. Louis ranks number four at creating high percentage chances. At five-on-five up by a goal, St. Louis ranks 30th at high percentage chances and ranked fifth at chances against at five-on-five. Now, when I looked at that, I'm saying to myself, wow, pretty neat. Uh, They don't really go for it when they are up by a goal. They pack it in and they play defensively and they're good at closing teams out. They don't give up a lot. Uh, They don't create a lot. Um, and then I was looking at, you know, Jordan Bennington, because what I've always looked at with data is 
how a goaltender can elevate a weaker team or unravel a very good team because it's it's a different sport, right? It's it's an individual playing hockey. I never even considered myself a hockey player. I was a goalie. Mm-hmm. But uh, at five on five, with the game tied, Jordan Bennington ranked number three in expected goals differential. So how many difficult shots he faced and then how many goals he allowed – he ranked number three in the league. So you've got a very good goalie that can play under those game conditions when the game is tied. And I think that, again, is pointing to the psychology of your goalie. And it's very neat because you can look at team by team and see what goalie is good when they're up by a goal, what goalie is bad when they're down by a goal, what goalie is very strong or weak when the game is tied. Because then you can help that guy. You could have a great technical goalie with a great physical frame but if he doesn't have the mindset to be able to play in those different game conditions, and then you can actually see it and help him with, I've told you, sports psychologist, I wish I had a hired her 10 years sooner. You can still help these people and you don't have to trade them. But if they have one place in their game that's unraveling their entire game because they're having a mental shutdown or fatigue, you can help them. I know you can. And um, another th- interesting thing here with uh, Bennington was that at six on five with the goalie pulled, Bennington was number four in the NHL in expected goals differential again. So again, the quality of shots that he faces, how many saves he makes, how many goals he allowed, number four. Uh, five on five, up one goal. St. Louis is, again, very good at clamping down, not allowing a lot of high-quality scoring opportunities. Um now, again, why is that so important as it relates to Bennington? Because Bennington is one of the league's best at stopping the shots he should stop in those game conditions. Bennington is at the top of the NHL in not allowing low percentage chances against. Okay, so that's a data's form way of saying he only allowed one goal, one low percentage goal on 129 shots this season. And I think that's neat because now you've got a good hockey team in St. Louis that's leaning on their goaltender they once didn't have, and now they've got a guy that's in there and is able to close it down. David Riddick was last with 10 goals against on 126 shots. Now, Bennington shuts the door when the team is up by a goal, doesn't get rattled, and does not give up the bad goal where Riddick does. And that's why I think it's so important to look at score effects because if you don't know who's performing when the game is tied, up by a goal or down by a goal, then do you really know what you have and what you can count on in the postseason? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, in talking to you and hearing that, you know, about your database and you you incorporate video for your clients or for your company, um, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of people uh, – analyzing data there's every team has a has has data analysts uh, for their own purposes um, teams hire you as well uh, they look at for anything to get an edge how do you it, it's not even convincing um, you know how do you fight against what what I guess we'd call confirmation bias that that GMs and coaches and players see the things that they want to see and if you're showing them things number data or video that contradicts it, how difficult is it to get people to change their minds, I guess, uh, when they've been playing and coaching and running a sport for so long? It's it's a battle, okay? It's a battle. And I'm not going to sugarcoat it because every team now employs an analytics team and a coaching staff 
And those two departments have to then relay up to the general manager and the general manager to the president that everybody's doing their job and there's going to be conflict there. And now there's another layer of conflict. Um, the reason why I was first hired three years ago by an NHL team was because I was coming in as the third party that was going to mediate the scoring chances the day after the game was played because the analytics group wouldn't be in line with what the coaches believe they saw. The coaches then would have, depending on the game, you might have one day the goalie coach doing the chances and one day the defensive coach doing the chances and a chance that goes towards the other team's net is not qualified the same one that you receive yourself. So there's a lot of internal struggle there. Uh, I struggle with something that's come up recently with us in our database, and that's that uh, one of our shot types has just been getting lower and lower every year. Um, clear-sighted shots, so shots where the goalie has more than half of a second of clear sight on the puck before it comes off the shooter's stick. That's what we would qualify as a clear-sighted shot. Now, as you know, Arthur, when you look at a lot of the public available data, that shot that I'm referring to from the slot area, home plate, or the house, depending on how you refer to the slot area, um, that would be qualified as a high danger shot for most companies out there. Now, that doesn't qualify as a high danger shot for us because we've looked at roughly 5,000 chances a year on clear-sighted shots come from the slot. So a player skates into the slot area, unobstructed, has a little bit of time and space, and shoots and tries to beat a goalie clean. Now, the unfortunate role that I play with this company is I have to explain to a team that this year in the NHL, that shot only went in 7.1% of the time. Wow. And when you look at it on video, it doesn't look great. And, you know, it just doesn't. It looks like a scoring chance. And really, that qualifies as a low percentage scoring chance for our company. It's a shot that goes in less than 9% of the time. But what it leads to is, okay, then send me the list of shots, Steve, you know, like wise guy. And then I'm, okay, I'll send you everything we have. Here you go. And here's when, here's the video. Um, but I could share some of those insights with you and some of the conversations I've had, Arthur. Uh, Austin Matthews, okay? He had 41 clear-sighted shots from the slot area this year in the NHL, okay? Led the league. He had the most shots. How many goals just from being a hockey guy, being around the game, I guessed uh, I was off. I'm wondering what your guess would be. How many goals on 41 shots? Uh, I would say for a guy of his caliber, uh, 10 would be my guess. That's that's where I was. I was like 11, 11. Um, He's the best shooter in the game, isn't he? Uh, he had four, he scored four (laughs) goals on 41 shots. And this is the guy that I rave about on MSG about his release. But when I watch those 41 shots, just to be sure, and I go over everything and I see the goals that he does score, he actually scores when he's shooting through a defender's triangle. He's got a really good drag and pull and a release that comes off quickly and surprises goalies when he uses a defender as a screen. So that's a tactic that he uses very well. Does he beat a goalie clean when the goalie's got that all-important half of a second of clear sight? No. Um, There was only three or four guys that really stood out in that shot type. Uh, Jack Eichel had 29 shots from there, so not as many as Austin Matthews, but he scored seven goals. So his shooting percentage on that particular shot type was 24%. He led the league. 
All right. So he's one of those elite snipers that can look at a goalie and beat him clean. Right. Just like the uh, Wild West. He's a, gunsl- <laughs> he's a gun. He's a gunslinger. Right. Um, John Tavares had a very good year this year, um, but not a lot of chances from there. Clear sight. He had 21. And these are all all conditions. Four goals, but he shot 19 percent. Um, geez, Malkin, four goals on 19. Dreisaitl, three goals on 19. So those guys are at 21 and 15 percent respectively. But again, overall, I'm looking at this list, and it's a tough one to explain to people in hockey if you don't have the video to back it up. Yeah, it's. I mean, it. You know, it surprises me, and we've talked plenty about things that have surprised me, and I think. Uh, you know, just as as someone who's seen tons of games, when you when you have you don't maybe don't have a to you know a Tavares or a Drysaddle or someone of that caliber, but even a a good NHL player alone in the slot should be able to score a goal. That's, I think that's what every fan's expectation is, and and uh, it's it's surprising and revel, you know re- revealing really to to hear that there are better options out there and. Um, you know, I wanted to to sort of spin it forward a little bit for you. You know, obviously you've had a lot of time. We've all had so much downtime these last few months. Have you been thinking about where the next wave of data can take you, or what it can tell you about uh, about things happening in the NHL right now, or things uh, things to come uh, that might be of interest to to people watching the game? I, I think that. Right now, I've kind of spent the last three or four weeks just, again, uh, the fantasy, I'll say, the fantasy of being able to be fascinated enough to understand game conditions. I really think this is important because if you don't look at how your players are performing in certain game conditions, I don't think you really have a good grasp of the psychology of your team because there are times where we can watch the game and two years ago, the Rangers gave up a bunch of leads at the end of uh, a bunch of games. And now all of a sudden, you're kind of categorizing your team as mentally soft. If two years ago, you're giving up a number of games late, you just feel that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's kind of neat is when you leave the game level and you look at your team and then drill down one more layer and look at your players, it's amazing, Arthur, how many times it's the same guy. Mm-hmm. you know. And some people just can't perform under certain game conditions. Like there's an anxiety, there's a uh, past experience and there's something there that they don't give themselves permission to succeed. They can't wait to fail or they don't, it's not the best way of saying it, but they don't expect to to win. It's almost like they've, they're going to relive something that they've failed at in the past and they're going to do it again. Um, it's amazing when I see teams losing and what their percentage of losing is when a goalie gives up a low percentage goal. It's it's like the entire bench sinks, mm-hmm. right? And I uh, I thought the Rangers this year, and I'll just speak to the Rangers just because I covered them so closely as far as I watched them so closely. I watched the Islanders not as close, but very close. But with the Rangers, um, they had a really good season in net between all three guys that played. But I noticed in my notes that game over game, um, they lost games where their goalies allowed a low percentage goal against. That just kept, I, I'm, those are my notes. I'm looking at them. Geez, okay. Georgiev gave up a low percentage when they lost that game. Henrik gave up one there. Shesterkin gave up. These are all games they're losing. Amazing. Is their margin for error that small that their goalies can't give up one low percentage goal? That sinks the entire game. The 60 minutes is over. Um, 
The Rangers lost 70% of the games where their goalie allowed uh, one low percentage goal against. But it made me think a little bit harder, and I took another dive at this, and I wanted to look at what happens if the Rangers score one low percentage goal in a game. It happens. They had a game in Montreal where that happened, and they give up two. Mm -hmm. They lost 82% of those games. Wow. So in 17 games this year, they were outscored in low percentage goals. I mean, they had one, but they gave up two, and they lost 82%. The Devils lost 90% of the time. Wow. In 20 games this year, they they got outscored in low percentage goals, and they lost 18 games out of those 20. 90%. So if I'm the Devils, right, and another team in our region that we cover closely, how much do you look at what the goalies were doing early in the season, which really hurt you? You're, you weren't giving up that many chances. You weren't that bad offensively. But your goalies, you, you weren't getting goaltending. I think we went through a stretch this year, Arthur, where it was eight coaches fired during a seven-week stretch. Right. Take a look at the goaltending they got and where they were. And, and then, and I'm talking about within our database, every coach got fired because they didn't get goaltending. Mm -hmm. I could go through team by team. So that's something that fascinates me because are we looking hard enough the right way at what we actually are. I mean, there's some good teams out there firing good coaches. And it wasn't that. It wasn't that. So I'm kind of putting together projects like that. And um, another thing I'm looking at is just how to evaluate goalies just to get a better look at what lists can we put together that can have a scouting report before we play against a goalie to give us the exact path towards success before a playoff series begins against a specific guy. Um, and then in doing that, I take a, a large view as well. And one of the ones that I, one of the lists that I like to look at are expected goals. So how many shots your goalies face over the year and how many goals should they give up? And then look at the differential and the guys that are in the minuses all miss the playoffs. So again, there isn't a good team that had poor goaltending this year. But there are some very good teams that had great goaltending, and now the perception is is that they've got a great team and their coach is great. <laughs> but it's not always the case. I mean, you have to look a little bit deeper. I'll, I'll share this one with you because I was looking at this uh, yesterday. So I'm looking at the list of the expected goals and the rankings for every goalie in the NHL this year, and, and I chose to use a filter of 950 scoring chances against, so you can kind of weed out the backups and get a good look at all the starters, and you get a list of 22 goalies in the NHL that qualified for that list of 950 chances faced. And it's it's neat. I mean, I wrote a couple of things down that I – just quick snapshots. Connor Hellebuck, best goalie in the game, no question, should be your Vesna Trophy winner. Um, Jacob Markstrom deserves a big payday. Rask and Crawford, still elite goalies in their 30s. Robin Leonard, he should start over Flurry. UC Soros should start over Rene. Blackwood in New Jersey is a legit goalie at 23 years old. Bobrovsky and Gibson, their games fell off a cliff this season. Um, th those are just the first few things I look at on, on this list. I mean, the names just come right off the page and it's neat to see how a guy performs based on what he's facing because we've never had the opportunity to look at things like that, especially during my playing career. There's no way you could be able to say, well, the only reason why Broder is good is because he faces 18 shots. Well, 
you, you still have to qualify the fact that he had two two-on-ones, a breakaway, and of those 18, right? So yeah. now you can see the quality and then measure it the right way. Um, I find it interesting. I find it fascinating. And as, as much as I've talked about the goaltending, we can do those same things and same filters for our shooters and for our defensemen. The thing that you bring up uh, that's that most interests me is I think uh, a lot of people, whether they are public data analysts or fans, I think they feel like data and the human emotion, the human side of being a, a, a player or a goalie, uh, are somehow separate, that you can look at those things separately. And what you're saying is they are obviously inextricably linked, that that the data is reflective of people's emotions, uh, people's confidence. Um, and and uh, to me, that is interesting because I think, uh, and I'm sure you're familiar with it, that a lot of people look at the numbers and say, this is, these are just numbers on a piece of paper. I'm, or whether it's a coach, I have to coach personalities. I have to, I know these people and that there's, there is a way to combine these two to, to create a better, a better analysis of a player or, or a goalie. Wouldn't you say that even just having this conversation, as if this isn't to be broadcast, but we're just talking just the way that you and I normally talk, that every team should employ a sports psychologist and have the right guy that can look at this data? Yeah. You know? I mean, exactly that. Because I'm telling you, I live this. I live this. My biggest issue when I was in the minor uh, minors, Arthur, was that I didn't play well against the poor teams. I'd play really well against the good teams. Big game against Bridgeport when I'm playing for Hartford. I played well. Every time, every time, got up for that game, had a, had a lights out performance. Why is it that my numbers in the minors, I'm able to pinpoint it because I'm living that experience. But what if you have a guy that you're developing in the, let's just say it's uh, Sorokin. Ilya Sorokin mm-hmm. comes over and he's playing for the Islanders next year. And he's not playing well against the lower teams in the league, but he's playing big against the big teams. You know, that's right there. You got a young guy that's impressionable and he's finding his way in the league and he's going to find his way in the league the same way Shesterkin has, but he needs a little bit more help. And now you have somebody on him. Hey, let's go. This is what, this is the deal. This is in the data. Let's look at the game conditions. Let's watch the video. He has a letdown here. It's the hardest. It's the hardest part about scouting. It's the reason why there's so many mistakes in the draft. It's because when we get to the point of developing these players, we don't know how to psychologically work with them. And then we did deem them a bust because we couldn't get through to them. But you didn't even know what the root of the problem was. Mm-hmm. And I feel like this is the this is the next frontier of data can really help us get into the mental game. Um, if we're talking about a developing player or even a superstar that doesn't score when you need a big goal, you know how some guys just get their cookies when it's easy conditions, down by three or up by three, mm-hmm. scores a couple of goals and makes the game close, but you still lose. Um Maybe that would help a Buffalo, you know, with maybe a Jeff Skinner and seeing when he scores and, and just look at these things. And not to say Jeff Skinner is not going to be able to score at five on five uh, when the score is tied, but maybe we can help him. Maybe we can help him. We can help his mindset and then have the confidence to perform in those big time game situations that you need him to perform in or your team doesn't make the playoffs. So on the player level, if you can't help anybody, how's your team going to, how's your team going to do? Yeah. It's, uh, this stuff is great as always. And I love talking to you about this stuff because I learned so much and hopefully our listeners and our readers learn as well. So, um, Steve Valiquette, uh, founder of Clearsight Hockey, former Islander goalie. Thanks again, as always, amazing insight and, uh, we really enjoyed it. 
My pleasure, Arthur. Anytime, buddy.